What is up, my friends? Welcome to Rebel and Create's Fatherhood Field Notes podcast, where I interview incredible fathers, gaining wisdom from their stories for you and I to grow in our craft. I'm your guide, Ned Shout, father to five kiddos currently ages 7 to 14, and husband to my rad wife, Sarah, working on our 17th year of marriage. So yeah, I'm in the thick of it, the adventure of fatherhood. I'm working daily to rebel against the low expectations for fathers and create a world where fatherhood matters. You and I have the greatest opportunity to impact our world through the way we embrace our fatherhood role. I believe the role of the father is to serve, guide, provide, protect, and to have fun in the messiness of it all. Today's guest is Nate Day, and this guy is just an incredible father. I had so much fun talking to him. He is fun, he is engaged, he is challenging the status quo, and he is adventurous with his kiddos, outdoors, hunting, having fun, and he has a badass custom truck that he built for all the adventures with his family. If nothing else, just go to his Instagram, Someday Adventure, and at least check that out. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Fatherhood Field Notes. I am really excited to be talking to Nate Day. Nate, what's up? Hey, how you guys doing? Dude, I am really pumped to talk fatherhood with you as I, I found you on Instagram. Okay, so I think I want to I share this. I found you on Instagram. I see these incredible pictures of you and your family. And so I hit you up and I'm like, hey, bro, I do you know a fatherhood podcast. Would you want to be on it? And this is what you said back to me. One, you responded, which was cool. And you said, what is it about me in particular that you are interested in? And as soon as I got that text, I was like, oh man, this guy is real deal fatherhood, uh, humble, no BS, and is only going to put his time into something that matters, right? So I just love that response. I I appreciate you reaching out. And the full disclosure, I uh, recently discovered because of actually my oldest son that apparently I have um, OCD. <laughs> so I'm very blunt. It's not Asperger's for a period of time. I thought it was some <laughs> form of Asperger's, but uh, now it's just OCD. And I don't know if it's hereditary because uh, I've been looking into my dad and why he is the way he is and things like that. But you now a lot of people reach out on the internet and you get the weirdest requests or weirdest conversations. And so I, you know, over over the years, I've learned to just be direct and be like, hey, so what are you interested about me? And so I just know what it is you in particular um, kind of are looking for. Yeah, but I love that because it's like, it's, it's, you're not in this, like, how do I grow my Instagram? How do I like puff up all the things that I'm doing? It's like, it it felt very much like, yeah, I would talk to you, but I want to know that this isn't just more fluff. It's got to be real. Yeah, I like the sincerity, you know, Yeah. Uh, when when you talk to somebody online, there's a number of people that just look for tips, tricks, or just, you know, cheats on whatever it is they want to do in life. And then there are people who actually want to make a connection and they're, they're actually talking to you and, you know, really listening, really paying attention. And they have that kind of, you know, awareness of a real person on the other end of things. I'm not just there as some sort of customer service person servicing them. It's, I'm a person living my own life. I have my own family and that's kind of, I got the vibe when, when you reached out you were a real person, you had real, real things to talk about. Yeah, man. It's, you know, I started this fatherhood. I, I, I got five kids. My oldest is 14. So I've been a dad for 14 years, but this journey to really want to inspire other dads, uh, the last three to four years. And when I stumbled upon, you know, your pictures and, and what you're doing with, with your boys, 
I was like, this guy's got some wisdom to share. So, so I'm excited to dig into that with you. So real quick to, to get into a little bit of um, help everybody know who, who we're talking to here. I'm just going to rapid fire a few questions and kind of dig into to you. So <clears throat> how old are you right now? I believe I'm 34. The best I can remember. <laughs> okay. And uh, how many years have you been married? I have been married 10 years now. Okay. Um, as of July, and- July 10th, I remember. I'm not going to forget. What? <laughs> Dude, July 10th is my wedding anniversary. Really? Yep. Yeah, we went for 7, 10, 10. So, Dude, that's rad. That was our, our thing. Ours was 2004. So. 7, 10, 4. Well, 7, 10, 4. <laughs> not 10, as four. cool. <laughs> yeah, okay. Maybe I got 10, 4 in it, so. Um, and then, so you guys didn't mess around at all. I mean, you straight went to the kiddos. So how many kids you guys have? Well, you see, nine months after we were married, uh, my first son came out. And okay. um, I've got four sons, coincidentally, and um, nine, seven, five, and three years old. And they're all monsters. Nine, seven, five, and three. Yeah. Or three, Dang. five, seven, and nine, whichever you way. You guys are go. planners. No, I just knew I wanted them really fast. My brother and I are actually Irish twins. Um, okay. We're, we're less than a year apart and actually 11 months apart. And so just growing up, I knew I liked the dynamic of having a sibling that was so close to you in age that you kind of were always on the same page. There wasn't yeah. a, a dichotomy of like an age gap. So I told my wife that's what I wanted to do. After the first two, she said, oh, my God. i'd like two more and uh we eventually came to an agreement on the fourth one she was like we are done thank you very much Uh, thanks for playing um we're done at four so so donezo nice well Mm -hmm. dude that's awesome four boys under 10 10 years that's that's uh that's serious and then where do you guys live well we're originally from san diego or southern california Mm -hmm. um and right now we are living in Boise. Okay. Um, we are part of the Cadillacit movement. Um, after I retired from the sheriff's department, I knew that we had no reason to stay down there. I love, I love California and a lot of, of what it has to offer. But there was a lot I disagreed with. Um, even the philosophy, you know, I had, I would say, like older gentlemen that would be around my dad's age, just laugh at why I didn't like certain things. And I'd be like, well, it's called the California sunshine tax. And I'm like, no, I don't believe that's the way it should be done. And so I took off. So we'll get go. into that yeah. part later. Yeah, that's good. Um, okay. So what do you do? You said you, you retired from the sheriff's department. Is there anything that you do now? Yeah. Fortunately, um, when my wife and I met at UCLA, she knew she always wanted to be a writer. And while I was playing football there, um, I discovered I loved photography and so she started working for a publication in Los Angeles and they needed a photographer. And she said, well, you know, my boyfriend at the time, that was me. Um, he's a photographer. He could take these like random pictures for you that you guys need that you don't want to hire a full photographer for. And so I wound up, that's how I started shooting. Um, and when I got done, I realized I didn't want to work in a cubicle. Mm. So I, I became a cop and I love problem solving. It's just part of my, my brain stuff. And I kept going and kept going and kept going with photography, but always as sort of like a hobby. And mm-hmm. then Chelsea started a blog in 2009, which is our family blog. Someday I'll learn. Yeah, someday I'll learn. Okay, I want to hear more about that, but go yeah. on. Yeah. Um, and I just 
took all the pictures whenever she needed them. I mean, she did like the crafting pictures and things like that. But when it came to portraits of her and the boys and stuff and action shots, that's where I really wanted to do it. And so long story short, um, with those skills, we created our own company and it's a media business. And so, you know, I was actually working two jobs while I was still working with the sheriff's department. And I told them I was planning on leaving and they thought I was kidding. And I said, no, I'm serious. I'm getting kind of tired of this. And they're like, oh, okay, because it's an institution, and you can ask probably any cop you know. Once you get in there, they assume you'll be there for 30 years. And, uh, yeah, one day I came in with a bunch of Costco pizzas and said, all right, guys, my last day. And they all, <laughs> we, all, we all ate them at the table, and they, they their jaws on the table were just like, you're being serious. And I was like, yeah, I'm done. And so I took off. And I fortunately had a business to move into that yeah. my wife actually primarily built. And she did a really good job doing it. And I'm now a full-time part of that. That's awesome. That's awesome. How fun to be able to do that together. Um, perfect. All right. So I'm going to jump into a few questions for you. <clears throat> as you've become a father as quickly as you did, <laughs> what, <laughs> what have been some of the best resources for you? Um, as far as like my fatherhood goals and outlook. Yeah. So is, yeah, exactly. So when you think about, okay, you, you become a father at, uh, like 25 and you have to get into this. So it's like resources could be books, people, your story, um, all of the above. So when you think about the things that shaped you and, and your wife is Chelsea, right? Yeah. Chelsea. You, yeah. Your guys is kind of parenting philosophy, your fatherhood philosophy. What were the resources that shaped that? I think a big part of what helped mold my take on uh, my parenting and being a father was first experiences I had watching my father and his relationship with his father first. That's just, mm. I give it a skeleton frame. Um, but then as I went on, um, I kind of had to piece it together with the best people I knew and just things being what they are. My best friend is my wife and her childhood is, uh, I'll say, um, a triumph of dealing with tragedy. And yeah. uh, I'll get into that in a second. So a number of things like that. So I got the skeletal structure from my, my dad. Um, we're kind of a nomadic family when I was a kid. Uh, I had mentioned a while back talking to you that I had lived all over the country. I was born in San Diego. And then we wound up living in Washington, Oregon, Oklahoma, back up to Washington, down to California. And now here I am in, in Idaho. And there's never a place where I really lived where I got to feel like a part of a neighborhood. So there was no like friends, dads that I watched. You know, uh, we've been part of different churches. We've been in Southern Baptist churches, non-denominational churches, um, things like that. And, you know, everybody always, I, I find that as an adult now, I'm not really jealous. It's just kind of like, I realize the difference between myself and a lot of people who grew up in suburbs or in towns where they always knew people. I've never, I don't have anybody except one friend that I just happen to stay in touch with all my life. Um, I don't have a town where I had people to look up to. There's no mm -hmm. Mr. Jo no Mr. Jones for me. Yeah. And so it just comes from, again, what I got from my dad initially, which is some part good, some part bad, some part terrifying. And from there, just built myself to be better and better and better. Um, fortunately, I got to meet some very, very historical figures like John Wooden. Uh, while playing at UCLA, and you you learn about people and their character, 
along the way. And you're people, I guess in my position where I never had a hometown, people thought I was a military brat. It was really just failed construction that hmm. caused us to move so much. And that was, you know, a lot of people have seen the old like depression era movies that kind of felt like my life minus the, the dust bowl. <laughs> yeah. We were just traveling, finding work and things like that because of my parents. Uh, my mom put herself through nursing school. She became a nurse and it was just, you know, they say latchkey kids. We were very much like that because we had to be. And so I, I got to meet some people and I modeled after some of them. And then eventually the strongest influence I think was my wife and knowing that she had a family, which was really messed up. And I, you know, I'll talk about it in a second, but, but at the same time, she made me want to have that improved version of myself be a mm. father. So my dad, so to give you the, the explanation my skeletal fatherhood framework, my dad was abandoned by his dad when he was 10 years old, who mm. went off to live with another woman. And his mother was an alcoholic. And he grew up in the early 80s, late 70s, and was he got a full ride scholarship to play at uh, San Diego State. Okay. He, he was a quintessential uh, 80s football player. Now, if, if you have no idea, he's actually missing teeth down here on the bottom jaw. Okay. Because, I mean, just one of those ripped, bloody-knuckled, pure violence, defensive tackle football players. And the reason he was so good at it, at least initially, is because he, he literally grew up on the streets. And he learned to get what he wanted through um, affirmation. And his affirmation was success, which was through sports. Not so much academics. Again, he went to San Diego State, so... He got in, um, <laughs> but I wouldn't say he was on the top of academics. Um, and rage was what drove him. And a rage of being abandoned, he would, you know, and I'm learning this now as an adult. It's just coincidence that we're talking about it now. Um, but he was he was purely fear, fueled by anger uh, of abandonment. And he wanted people to express to him that he was important and validated through success. Um but he also knew that when he met my mom and he had me, that he wanted to be the dad that he didn't have. Mm. The, thing, the thing with that is, is he had no idea what that even meant. Yeah. I mean, he had coaches that would smack him if he did bad things and so on and so forth. So you can imagine what it was like for me right. as a child with a dad who has no idea and operated purely, and I mean purely on rage. And as a, I mean, as a little kid, I didn't know he got arrested until three years ago. Uh, when I think when I was eight years old for, th I saw him do what he did. I didn't know he got arrested for it. Um, he threw two grave diggers. Uh, I want to say 20 feet for trying to get to my brother and I, because strangely enough, when we were five years old, he decided he didn't want to spank us anymore. He got tired of hitting us. He thought that was a bad thing. Something went through his head. He's like, I don't want to do this. I don't like the way my sons look at me when this happens. Hmm. So <laughs> instead he decided to run us because as an athlete, um, I mean, how that's, do you what, that's what you do. Yeah. That's what you do. So, I mean, we're eight year old kids. My brother's seven and he had nowhere to run us. We were at the DMV and the nearest place he could take us was a local cemetery. <laughs> in the, I love this story. Yeah. You know, it's it's, I'm funny. Not that you, yeah. it's, it's funny, funny, but not, but it's, it's funny, but it's, I, it's strange because my barometer for what other people think is normal is completely messed up. So we go to this long, huge, you know, I think state, cemetery and this is in central washington and he's just following us around in a car because it's not a loop 
and he's yelling like a coach would yell, you better stop dogging it, so on and so forth. And two gravediggers come over thinking like he's chasing us down with a car and we're running away terrified. <laughs> I mean, we were stressed out because we were running, but we yeah, weren't terrified. Yeah. Seven and, so, and eight years old. So <laughs> Yeah, so they, they, they come down to try to get my brother and I from this madman, who was actually just my father. And um, he gets out of the truck. It's a little old pickup. He says, get in the truck and lock the doors. He has, again, no, I'll say no social skills for conflict resolution at the time. And they try to get around him. Now, see, again, he's the quintessential 80s football player in the sense that without steroids or anything, he benched 650 pounds. He's 6'5", 350. He Dang. Was, a, to say he's a monster physically is not putting it strong enough. Like, So I literally watched him grab two men by their heads and throw them further than the length of my truck that I was sitting in. And... He, he turns around, and my brother and I weren't actually shocked by this. And this is all in retrospect, of course. Right, right. Um, we're just kind of like, yep, shouldn't have not listened to dad because what dad says is law. And that's actually kind of a big part of what was his, you know, parenting strategy. And we had no problem with it. It was pure dictatorship. And we were kind of on board because, you know, we didn't know any better and we hadn't hit our teenage years yet. <laughs> so, you know, later on, I remember the cops coming to my house and talking to him. And I think it was a subsequent later arrest. They put it off for an investigation or something. But these kind of things are the kind of things I grew up with. Hmm. And I mean, and I don't know if we'll get into it later, but I grew up thinking the violence was normal. You know, a lot of people have this mantra, well, violence isn't the answer. And I kind of was like, actually, yeah, it is. You know, it was very hard to separate that. And things that would make a lot of people like shake and cry and whatever, I would just be like, well, I mean, it follows logic, you know, don't, don't do this. That's so, just what happened to you. Yeah. So when did that shift for you? The idea that violence isn't the way to solve a, so let's just say every problem. <laughs> no. Cause, Cause maybe it is, maybe it is necessary at times. There's very, very small situations in which I would say, yeah, go for it. But it's, it's very, you know, there's a lot of things you have to do before you get to that point. Um, after meeting, my wife, I, I was in college. Actually, it was the first day uh, the students moved into the dorms of college. I met her, and funny story, I invited her over to play Halo, and she said, sure. And I walked <laughs> into my – and this is I was in the hallway from my dorm. She says, I'll be right back. And I walked in. I told my roommate, who was a teammate, and I said, hey, oh, my God, there's this totally hot girl outside. She's going to come back in a minute and play Halo, clean the room. So we cleaned the room. We pulled out onion dip and all the chips and stuff, and we waited, <laughs> and then we waited. And we waited, and she never came back. <laughs> she, she completely, apparently, I missed the eye roll that she did as she said she was coming back. And <laughs> she had thought I was just being a typical, quote-unquote, jock in college trying to hit on a girl. And I literally had Halo in the system, you know, waiting and warmed up on the menu. Like, you think she's going to want to be this character? You know? Oh, man. <laughs> Again, I have OCD, so I'm very literal. And so... Yeah, I saw her again in the lunch hall, and I was like, hey. And she's like, oh, hey. And I was like, uh, you suck. And we, <laughs> we actually did not like each other for one solid year. And, wow. Uh, yeah, so uh, I met her the first day we moved in. For one year, we detested each other. And then one day, I just looked at her and said, hey, how about um, – because I always thought she was really pretty. And coincidentally, she saw me all over campus because of things that I was do. I was very visible. And I said, hey, how about we start over? 
my name's Nate. I would like to be your friend. Um, then I, I just don't want to glare at you anymore. And she, <laughs> she, she just was, you know, taken aback, I guess, by my directness and was like, okay. And I think less than a couple weeks after that, we started dating. And oh, then we got, cool. we got married five years after that. So, man, that's uh, awesome. But yeah, so she changed my perspective on this and the violence and everything like that. And I realized, you know, maybe something's wrong <laughs> with the way I'm looking at things. Maybe something's wrong with the way I just assume things are. And that kind so is of- there an actual shift? Like, do you remember there being a shift? I mean, because you, you are a football player. You are, uh, I mean, but then you even get into the sheriff's department, which it sounds like that that shift happened prior to that. No, actually, it was after that. Hmm. Um, it, it's kind of strange because, again, you don't realize how desensitized you are to certain things until you realize everybody's complaining about the same thing as far as being victims. And you're kind of like looking at them going, why are you so upset? And even your partners are kind of like, oh, my God, that's terrible. This happened to you. And I'm like. You're like, that's just life. I'm like, that's just, this is not the way things are always going to be for people. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of, it was a slow, slow turn there. And okay. then when my, my son came out, I kind of had to deal with how I disciplined him. And I would, like, flick him when he was really little. And then if he did something that was, like, catastrophically dangerous, like playing with fire or a knife or something weird, you know, he'd get a spanking and this little look on his face kind of just made me realize this is there's something wrong with this. I don't like the way I feel. I don't like the way this makes mm. me feel. I definitely don't obviously like the way he feels, but uh, something. And so I just started evaluating things differently then. So, man, that's awesome. It's heavy. It's, I think it's really in, insightful, you know, I mean, even you talking about, I can tell it matters. And I think it's powerful for dudes to hear, you know, because I think, you know, well, we'll get into it in a minute. So, all right, I'm going to shift gears and, and just ask you, let's talk about the role of the father. So when you think of the role of the father, <clears throat> what what do you think that is? What do you think that entails? Uh, I would have to say that a dad's job is to guide their children, you know, um, but through a number of, of ways that promote a better life for them when they're older. I mean, you could do whatever you want now. You can facilitate like rules and things like that now. Um, but what you're really doing is trying to build the character of somebody for a future. Um, let me see. I had, yeah. One of the things you'd, you'd mentioned was self-awareness. And I thought, I mean, that's really a power. You're, you have a, your oldest is nine and you're mm-hmm. wanting to teach, teach him and, and the younger boys to be self-aware. Why was that an I mean, clearly I'm already kind of know why it's important to you getting to know you the last few minutes, but self-awareness, why is that something you put in there? Well, I think, and I'm glad you brought that up because it took me a second. I had the notes here and I, (laughs) I wanted to make sure I mentioned them, but the three things that I think are important are expressing to your kids what the pain points in life are going to be. Self-awareness is extremely important. And then finally, uh, you know, teach them to have their own drive and, and desire and things like that. But self-awareness I think is important because you can't really get into um, fixing yourself as a person, adjusting yourself around other people without being first honest with yourself of, of who you are. And that doesn't mean yeah. to degrade your own confidence or and be like, well, I'm really not that great. In some cases, yeah, you're going to have to do that. Um, and this is something I struggled with personally as somebody who not realizing until about a year and a half ago that I had OCD was, I would uh, have an effect on people 
because I'm you know, the word that was used was domineering, and uh, it was the unfortunate fact of me is that I'm six four and three hundred thirty pounds, former football player. I'm rather muscular. I know people can't see the pictures of me right now, but I have very broad shoulders. <laughs> I'm a very large person. And <laughs> as somebody with OCD, and I don't know how familiar you are with these types of, you know, things, um, I have a tendency to converse with people when I feel like my brain is assessing it as a discussion to improve a situation, to be very factual and very literal. I can be sarcastic as long as I'm aware that nothing is serious is occurring. And it's almost like a brain calculation. Mm -hmm. But when I'm talking to somebody and I think we're solving a problem, I'm so direct, so blunt that they think I'm actually, I've noticed, and this is something I had when I was in the sheriff's room and a couple of my partners were like, you take control of the scene. And I was like, yeah. I'm like, but you pretty much like always take control of a scene and you're basically telling people what to do. And a couple of them said, you know, it feels like you're talking down to me. And I realized, I, at first I was like, no, I actually like you and respect you. I don't understand why you feel like that. And my own perception of myself was that I did like these people. I enjoyed my partners. They were good people. And they were smart and capable. But for some reason, when I conversed with them, again, not knowing what I was dealing with personally, you know, as far as a condition, um, I would say it's so matter of fact and so directly that they thought I was basically belittling them. Yeah, if, yeah. If that makes sense. So, no, totally. Did you find that you had that same experience with your wife? Uh, yes, initially. Um, but the cool thing is about she her. She wrapped that up quick, huh? Well, yes and no. <laughs> the thing is, is when she realized after the first year of hating me. Um, <laughs> okay, while, while not dating. Okay, while, not dating while, yet. While not dating. You know, you can't really get to know anybody. But when I walked up to her and said, you know, hey, I would like to be friends. I'd like to stop glaring at each other. Something like switched in her head. She realized there was something extremely sincere about what I was saying. And uh, I think over you know the very short period of time we initially started dating, she realized that everything I said was rooted in something good and actually something mm. sincere. It wasn't an ego thing. It wasn't anything like that. And she started to understand that when people would say, and I, I don't know if you have to censor me or whatever, but I'm using a word here. But a couple of people around her would be like, he's kind of an asshole. You know, <laughs> and she's like, no, he just doesn't understand how to talk to people. And dude, that's they, a good, that's a good partner right there. Right. Yeah. Like she, she took the time to see through who, what your, what your intentions were and, yeah. and the, the rough edges didn't, didn't, uh, Scare didn't her throw away. her off. Yeah. <laughs> and that's yeah. the point, right? I mean, marriage is so critical in our world and, and you think you need two people that are willing to do that. So that we can both become the people that, you know, we want to be. Yeah. And I think it's, again, that kind of goes to being self-aware and why I want to teach the boys to be self-aware because a lot of problems that occur in relationships, and this is speaking both personally and as a former cop, because I'd have to go into people's houses, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lack of what I would consider obvious communication. And there's a saying, you can't see the forest of the trees. So for myself to Chelsea and as a, you know, father, yeah, I think that I have, trouble sometimes realizing when I'm being bad, but I think because of something I developed, and this is one of the positives I got from my dad, is that because I'm fairly good at being self-aware, especially with Chelsea, I, I may not realize it at the moment, but I know I'm definitely capable of it, of saying things stupidly or not communicating well, um, that I am 
better suited to take a step back and just kind of say, okay, um, maybe I'm the one messing up here. So let so, me ask you, do you do that in the moment? So like, say you guys are in the middle of something, do you pause in the moment or when you walk away from the conversation, do you end up kind of thinking through and then self-realization and then go back to her with a, Hey, you know what? Here's where I was off. I would say for, for the most part, as I've gotten older, uh, more in the moment. More in the moment. Because, yeah. Um, I think uh, the reason I ask is I just think it's, I think one of the greatest gifts we can give our children is the demonstration of what our marriage looks like, you know? And, and so I think for other dudes to hear that is powerful, you know? Well, is it's the strangest thing because with a dad as violent as my dad was capable of being, um, he possessed a fair, I'm not going to say the best amount and not as, and I'll be honest, not as good as mine, a fair amount of self-awareness. Mm. And, and I know this because when, I was young. I don't remember. I was just before a teenager. He was, he would argue with my mom and he, he subscribed to the old saying, you know, like if mom ain't happy, nobody's happy. So he adored my mom and that's mm. you know, his best friend in the world. So I had at least that, at least their yeah. marriage was like the pinnacle of their relationship and everything they were doing. But he would say like, you know, it's probably best when you're dealing with somebody that you care about, like your wife or, you know, kids or whatever to initially assume or look for how you were wrong first instead of, I mean, it's almost like the old uh, speck in one eye, plank in another yeah. uh, proverb, but you know, it's just, it's just somehow he gave me that. And he says, just try to look at how you're wrong first. You have to assume going in, go into the argument or debate or whatever it is you're dealing yeah, with. I love that. I love that. Start with, I'm probably wrong. And if you do that, and you wind up going through a conversation and discover that that's not true. Well, then good for you. Hopefully you did it with grace. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you came yeah. through that. And so, yeah. Dude, that's really powerful. All right. I love, I love the, the role of the father. So this podcast, we're already doing it. It's fatherhood field notes. We're just digging into, you know, your, your life's field notes. And the mantra behind it is rebel and create. And it could be applied to so many things. But, you know, what are we rebelling against? Personally. And then what are you creating out of that rebellion? Uh, hopefully I'm creating better men. Uh, I have all sons, so no offense to anybody with daughters that are listening. Um, and I think in some way, this should be a good way to show them what kind of man to look for as they grow up. But for sure, uh, I have always disliked and as a dad, I'm a writer. So, um, I write about parenting and things like that. Not always like great tips, like how to be a great dad, but necessarily my journey as a parent Yeah, or just what we're doing. Um, but I, I learned that I, in high school did not like the word jock. Um, this is just an example to show you what it is that I don't like and kind of the way I think when I have as a father of four sons that are going to grow up. So I was the captain of the football team, captain of the wrestling team, captain of the track team. I went to state and all those sports. And then I got a full ride scholarship to play football and so on and so forth. And then I became a cop. At UCLA? Yeah. And you know, everybody has these assumptions of who you are and what this sort of person you, the, the what you do makes you who you are. And unfortunately mm. with, with athletes, you know, they get a physical stature as well. The what I see in front of me, the, the six foot four muscle clad, whatever, clearly means you are a jock. And, you know, for most of the early 90s and 80s movies, a jock was somebody who wore a letterman jacket, pushed nerds down, and was just a Neanderthal essentially in a high school hallroom. 
And so I was going through high school and somebody would just casually say like, Oh, he's a jock. And I was like, no, I would stop and be like, no, I'm not a jock. Um, and I think the thing that a lot of people missed was that I was an extremely empathetic person. I, my favorite movies are chick flicks, which is something nobody would ever assume. I spoke. So what's your late. favorite chick flick? Uh, Pride and Prejudice. Well, actually Pride and Prejudice only, but Notting Hill because Notting Hill's it. My favorite book is Pride and Prejudice by, um, Jane Austen. Yeah. So, and it's strange because people are like, how does he know Jane Austen? And I'm like, how do you not know Jane Austen? Like, <laughs> what are you reading? And <laughs> like, I, I don't call myself a feminist or anything. Cause I just think I act the way you should act. And it's like, I like that. Um, but yeah, like people miss things about you and they assume things about you just because of what you look like and what role you play in the community or, you know, in sports. So you've so, always rebelled against that since high school, really, because that's the only time it really blossomed. Everybody started happening. Yeah. Yeah. Cause nobody cares when you're in middle school and you play peewee football, they're like, Oh yeah, you're, we're so cool. We're all football players. Um, <laughs> but when it became so serious that I would get, I remember I was a sophomore and cause I went to two different high schools. I was going to high school in Washington at the time. And I came down to California again for my junior and senior year. And I was sitting in Spanish class and you know, they had the people that worked in the principal's office who brought things to the teachers. So the, I don't even know what you call them. Um, but they brought a letter in from the university of Washington. And the first letter I got for a scholarship was from the university of Washington, St. Louis. Nobody in the town I lived in got full ride scholarships to play football. When I was four years old, my dad sat me down and said, you're going to play football or you're going to go to any college you want and you're going to do it playing football. And he was very serious and he wow. knew exactly how to do it. And I said, okay. And I completely bought in and it was true. That's how I got into every Ivy league school. I have a funny story about getting rejected by Columbia while at the same time getting a phone call from the coach saying, come play for Columbia. <laughs> it was kind of funny. Um, but you know, so I'm sitting in this class and they, they bring the letter in and this is when things got so serious and people looked at me in a town where nobody got a full ride scholarship and they just dreamed about it. They watched like, what is it? Saturday night lights and things like that to like, yeah. it's a fantasy for them. And so they looked at me differently and they realized like this guy's like legit. And in, in their world, when I moved to California, I was kind of more average, if that makes sense. Um, but that's when it started and it changed and people were just saying things and doing things differently. And I was in the drama club, the symphony, the band, the orchestra, you know, I, I played trump that. trumpet bass. I played, I got typecast. I'm still going to complain about this, but I got typecast as a little John and Robin hood. Um, <laughs> I, was trying, I was trying for Robin Hood, but apparently my archery skills didn't matter. Um, <laughs> I was the only one over like five ten. <laughs> so, anyway, but this this type of thing, you know, it would happen, and you know, people would invite you over to their house, and they'd be like, "Oh yeah, you know, like Nate's here," and you know, they'd think I would do like keg stands, and I didn't drink. I was like, "Nope, that's not what I do." Um, you know, so that type of thing, I want to keep away from my sons. I don't want my third oldest son. His name is Arn. He almost died of RSV when he mm. was, uh, about a month old. I don't know if you know what RSV is. It's a respiratory virus. Yeah. It basically shuts down only baby's lungs. Um, once you hit about like toddler age, a little bit older than that, you're, you're more developed and your body can fight it off. But he basically closed up. It's all the worst symptoms you can get from coronavirus basically for a baby. And this is, right. this is, about five years ago and we're in the PICU for a week and they're suctioning his lungs. They're doing all these things. And I look at my son's face and I decide I'm not going to cut his hair uh, just like Samson. 
And I don't, you could probably get a picture of it later if you look at my Instagram or whatever. But I have this one son with hair that goes, if it's wet, all the way down to his butt. He is literally a behemoth of a child. Um, he is just yoked. And for a five-year-old, he's bigger than his seven-year-old brother. And just long hair. And these people say, like, oh, what a pretty girl. And I'm like, this is an ugly little girl. This is a little boy. Like, this is, <laughs> thank, you for the, thank you for the, like, unthought-out compliment. But this is, <laughs> this is this would be a hideous girl. This is a boy. And my fourth son, coincidentally, also got RSV. So we never wow. cut his hair. And Okay, yeah. I noticed that the two boys had long hair Yeah, and in so, the picture you had. So I have people, and it's funny, I moved to Idaho, and this is the first time I get this kind of response. Some guy's like, well, you should cut his hair. He looks like a little girl. And I was like, I really don't care what you think, dude. And it was in a restaurant. And it's just like- And then you stood up. Well, no, I sat there and said, (laughs) you can leave now. (laughs) He got the message. And uh, But no, like there's these things where there's these stigmas that all these, because I'm going to live in a house with so much testosterone. I hope I have a house standing when I'm done. But- you know, I don't want them to feel like they have to play to everybody else's rules, everybody else's assumptions, everybody else's archetypes of what a man is. A man can cry, you know, um, a man, and I'm not saying like, oh, you need to be sensitive, but you should be able to have your own feelings without worrying about what everybody else feels about. And these, these are the types of things that I want them to have. You know, I think character matters a lot, despite what people think is popular or good that was something fortunately I, I dealt with rather well having ocd i just kind of didn't care what other people thought i just did what i thought was factual correct but you know knowing how to and this is part of i didn't really get into the three points of what it is i want to bring to fatherhood but um self-awareness is a having that is a really good first step to forgiving somebody mm. if that makes sense and it's hard to do that when you feel like you're always the victor, always the one who's correct, always you're always striving to win an argument. Because if you approach every relationship you have, like it's going to be an argument when you do have an argument or debate, like it's something you're supposed to win and not being self-aware, then you're not going to really get the most out of life. You're just going to get what it is you think you're wanting, which could be tainted, tainted by marring somebody else emotionally. Hopefully it's only emotionally. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, um, and so these types of things I want them to have, not to feel like they have to be macho. Like, who cares about what macho is? I don't care, dude. I've, I have so many stories I could tell you. I mean, there are veterans I know that have similar stories that come back. My friend, I found out has like a silver star, a bronze star. He came back. He's the first person and one of my old teammates, first person I ever noticed to be different when coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And because I knew him before the war. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all my, uh, you know, law law enforcement friends, I didn't know di- notice the difference. But you know, these people, there's so many things that I've done in life. I don't have to prove myself to anybody, and I want my sons to know they don't have to prove themselves to anybody. You don't have to to be that way. And I think that's a big part of what I'm rebelling against, and I don't want them to have. And so, as far as create, I want to create confident, self-aware, you know, empathetic men or children or young men, and I would hope that they would find. Uh, a partner in life that valued those things in them. So, man, dude, it's, it, it so moves me and it. And, and I, I love everything that you're saying because the work that you're doing now is like setting up for our, you know, like I think you look around our world right now, it's like, Oh, it's a chaos. There's no leadership. There's no structure. And yet here's two dads right now talking. I've got five kids, four girls, you've got four boys. And, and, we are setting our, our children up because 
one day my kids are going to need somebody to marry. And I want to make sure there's other dudes out there who are being intentional about the human beings that they're raising. And that's exactly what you're doing. And I, that's what I want Rebel and Create to be is inspire other men to think that same way. And also to open up the world to go, hey, it's not all that's just on the media. There's actually really amazing people out there raising more amazing people. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a really good thing. And I, I think the world would be in a better place if a lot more people really slowed down and, and tried to understand that, you know? Yeah. Yep. That's, that's the goal. That's the plan. So tell me a little bit about, um, someday I'll learn and someday adventure and how that kind of ties into everything that you're talking about. I mean, it really feels like the philosophy that you're discussing now you're sharing through these platforms. Yeah. Um, someday I'll learn is what my wife started in 2009. She was the marketing manager for a couple companies up until that point. And she just got tired of working for other people. And she just decided because she had wanted to be a writer, um, she was just going to do it for herself. Like, okay. And I had gotten hired by the sheriff's department at the time or shortly after. And she comes home. I remember where we were standing. She says, I want to quit my job and just write for myself. And at the time she'd been, she'd been, I'll use quote fingers, blogging. There's no, everybody has an assumption what that is. <laughs> blogging for about a year at that point. And I mean, some brands sent her like lipstick and stuff to sample. So I thought that's, how, that's what it was. Yeah. And she, I think she got like a Vons gift card or something like here's a Vons gift card to write about a Turkey recipe. <laughs> so I was like, uh, cause I grew up poor. And so to me, not having that much money was kind of like not that scary. And I looked at her and it's like, okay, fine. You know, I got a job. I'm pretty much locked in due for 30 years. Lo and behold, that wasn't going to be true, but, um, <laughs> You know, and so she was like, all right. And she went into work the next day, gave her two weeks notice. And I was like, oh man, here we go. <laughs> she, she sits down on the computer, starts writing. And uh, I actually helped name it Someday I'll Learn using the, the name Day. And I was like, Someday I'll Learn will be the days, you know, because you could, yeah, whatever. We're trying to punt it up and all this stuff. And so it was mostly about domestic life and how to start from nothing, you know, as a, a new couple. You know, so here we are, a new couple. What do we do now? And that's kind of what she was writing about. Like an open diary. Yeah, kind of like an open diary and a little bit of a how-to. Like, all right, this is how I screwed it up. The first picture I did for her for the cover was her her (laughs) photoshopped a nuclear bomb into a frying pan. You know, like a little (laughs) mushroom cloud. It was kind of like a, this is our, you know, life falling together. And that's what that was. It took shape more into what she wanted it to be. She honed it and she did everything she you know, did to improve it over the years. And somewhere around two, 2014, I started actually writing kind of as a gag, you know, to because I'm just funny. I guess I like to be funny and ironic. And she said, hey, can you write this particular post? I was like, can I be funny? And she's like, yes, I'll censor it, but you can be funny. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote the post and like, okay, cool. And I was like, I love storytelling. I like doing it through mm. imagery for mostly, mostly imagery, yeah. but... And I was like, okay, cool. So I did this. And then uh, after a while, um, it got really, really good. Like it became a full-on business. We registered it. We insured it. We did everything that you're supposed to do when you have a business like this. And we had a great conversation with the insurance company. It was like, how do we insure you? We don't even know what you are. <laughs> well, we're uh, marketing sort of I'm like, okay, we'll just insure you for a million dollars because we have no idea what's going to happen. Like you're going to get sued or something. And then I, on a bet with her, I wanted to write about more masculine things. 
um, the viewership over there was, you know, 70% female, 30% male. And it just seemed to be very mommy related, you know? And I was like, you know what? And it wasn't fatherhood I initially started for, but someday adventure, I kind of branched off same sort of like name. Yeah. I like it. Similarity, but I just kind of wanted to write about adventure and stuff uh, like that. And my truck, I was building this. Okay. So let, yeah. Tell us about the truck. So any dude who's listening, like if you're, I think that's how I saw, I found you. Like I'm scrolling through Instagram hashtags of fatherhood and I see this rig and I go, this guy's <laughs> badass adventurer and there's kids in this picture. So tell us a little bit about this because now every dude who's listening is going to want to go see what we're talking about. Well, uh, yeah, I had a, a need to get a new truck at one point in 2013. I had a 2001 Toyota T- Tundra. And you know, I think a lot of people know that old Tundra model before the new one. And honestly, I knew what I was doing, but my transmission started slipping a little bit. And it, I think the fix maybe would have been too grand. But I also knew I wanted four kids. And so I'm like mulling over how I'm going to get a new truck from my wife. Because it's not getting it from a dealership. You're getting it from your wife. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, um, you know what? This transmission, those things, it's basically the value of the truck. It's going to cost to fix it. <laughs> I kind of played up every worst case scenario of like repair. Yeah. And I was like, also the boys, it was a suicide door back doors, you know, the ones that open to the front. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a full crew cab. And um, I was like, you know, their legs are starting to touch the seat in front of them. Let's get a, let's get a crew cab. We got it. We might as well just get a new truck. So I always wanted the diesel truck. So <laughs> literally go to the dealership. And the last thing she said before I picked it, she said, go big or go home. I swear she said that. <laughs> there you go. So I got an F3, a 2014 F350 crew cab, four-wheel drive with an eight-foot bed. Now that means that's a full-size bed, the full-size yep. cab, and the biggest engine you can get on a standard vehicle, you know. And um, I brought it home, traded in my old truck, said goodbye. They fixed it probably in like a day and sold it for <laughs> way more than it was worth. But um, no, we started this. And then uh, as a blog... I went home and I knew we wanted to try this thing called a road trip. And I don't know if it's on the blog anymore, kind of just because we changed directions, but we made this plan just before her grandmother died to uh, drive up to Yellowstone from San Diego. Nice. And so I drew, I drew up this loop and I took off about a month and I said, all right, what we'll do is my dad had this military trailer that he got at an auction for 750 bucks. I threw a whole bunch of stuff in it. Like you throw stuff in a radio flyer wagon and like all our camping stuff, not covered or anything. It was going to get rained on. And I put it on the back of the truck and we hauled it up there and we went off off road to campsites and things like that. We learned how terribly we were at it and how ill prepared we were. And I just remember bouncing down this road with, you know, you know what a washboard is, right? Where the road is just repetitively yeah. bu- bumpy. Looks like my um, stomach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not <laughs> so much. <laughs> uh, but so we went down this, in uh, this washboard road in Southern Utah, uh, kind of Northeast from Zion. If you know where Zion is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a Grand Staircase Escalante, and we were driven for 30 miles on this road. And I looked at her, and I just knew, I knew I would convince her I could I could lift the truck now, <laughs> but us new suspension and all this stuff. I said, you know, this wouldn't happen if uh, we had that suspension I talked to you about. And she's like, fine, just get it. <laughs> <laughs> so I snuck my way into that. Dudes are taking notes right now, just so yeah. you know. Okay, this is how to get a lift. How to get a lift kit. Just take your wife for a lovely picnic on a terrible road. And uh, 
so that's kind of where it started. Fortunately, the position I was in with the blog and everything, I actually wound up building up relationships with uh, BF Goodrich. Mm-hmm. Um, I started a relationship with Ford um, and a couple other brands that helped me along the way, Baja Designs, things like that. I don't know if you're familiar with these companies. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. um, and through the process of knowing them and kind of like planning things out, I wound up building the truck to what it is now. And I think when I bought it, I ha- if I had to guess, it was probably sitting on the ground, you know, full tank and everything about 9,000 pounds, maybe 9,000 pounds, 85. Yeah. Somewhere now I just accidentally found out that it was 12,000 pounds sitting there. <laughs> you did some work to that thing. Yeah. So it has a rooftop tent. It has six tires on it. You know, it's got two spares in the back and I could go somewhere, stop and we can all sleep in the top or the back. It's got a huge slide out bed and things like that. I've taken it to SEMA twice. Uh, if you know SEMA, it's the car show in Vegas. Mm. Um, it's a really big aftermarket parts car show. Um, yeah, that thing is badass, man. And, and what I love about the story too, is it's like, I think sometimes we think, oh, well I got to do like, we do all this preparation and you went and learned on the way. And I think that's just so powerful for dudes. You don't have to have this. You don't have to build this first, go do it. Just go out there and do what you want to do. You're going to learn a lot about what you need (laughs) when you go out and do things, because you know, they say you learn from trial and error. Well, you learn a lot from the error, not so much the trial. And, uh, (laughs) When you go out, I, I made a mistake. You're from Northern California. I'm from Southern California. So you remember when the big drought happened in what, 2014, 15, that they're all complaining about? Well, I made the mistake of driving my not quite completely built truck down one of those lake shore sand hills, you know, because oh, they're all man. low. I turned around successfully without rolling it and couldn't get back out. They had to bring a tractor out to pull me out. And my wife, the seeding look I got from her, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just an idiot. <laughs> I thought just having off-road tires was going to fix this. And then you just learn a lot along the way and you learn what's not important, what it is important. And, uh, and also you learn the value of, you know, I'm not saying everybody should do. Yeah. It's cool that I can do that kind of stuff and that's fun, but it's brought me to a lot of different places and realizations that I realized were really important. And one of which in Southern California was the desert. For example, we drive out now, you know, we went to camp and we stopped and we stayed there for like three days. And I honestly didn't grow up camping. My dad, we were so poor. We didn't have time to even take vacations. We went camping on a lake when somebody else took us, mm. you know. And so I'm sitting there in the desert in, a, in an area where you normally zip through on the way to Vegas or something. And I look down and I realize there's flowers. There are flowers like every three feet. And I didn't know that. Like, then they're tiny little flowers. They're about the size of like thimbles. But I look down and notice this. And I start to look at the ground and what it's made of, this decomp or... Uh, decomposed granite and all this stuff that's out there and i'm like this is actually far more fascinating and then i looked at my son and i said well to myself i was like there's so much to show him that i never knew Hmm. you know what i mean and so again i started out to do all the cool like gear stuff and the truck stuff for that particular page the someday adventure instagram page and things like that but through that experience i learned one not how to be an idiot and trap myself at the bottom of a lake um, but two, there's so much you miss just driving between things and, you know, the experience of just taking off a tire. I have a, an article or a video I did on YouTube at one point, like how to change a tire on a lifted truck and just having my son jack the truck up and realizing this is actually not only valuable for him to know, but the time I'm spending with him is valuable as well. You know? I think people miss that. I think that it's the in between stuff that really shapes those relationships. Um, yeah, so so I I one hundred percent believe that. And then just going back to the desert thing, we grew up in Southern California, and our grandparents had property in Barstow, so we'd go out there all the time. Yeah, 
I have such a love for the desert and watching that sun come up in the desert and how it feels on your skin in the air. It's, 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 uh, the desert's incredible. Yeah. Barstow's hot. <laughs> yeah. Barstow can get so hot. <laughs> yeah. And, but you know, it's funny you learn like in San Diego, you know, at three o'clock you get this offshore breeze and I, uh, you, you learn to predict these things. And I remember just telling my son, it was the middle of the day. It was probably about one o'clock. He's just, the air is still, that's when the air stops. You know what I mean? Right in the middle of the day. And then this offshore breeze comes at three o'clock and I tell him like, it's not going to be hot for very long. There's going to be breeze here almost at three o'clock. And he kind of looks at me like, how does dad know this? Like, how do you, why? And it's when the sun shifts over the other side and pushes the air back. And that's actually now what I'm talking to him about. If I think you've seen my recent pictures, um, I took him hunting now up here in Idaho and understanding and teaching him about being upwind, downwind, and paying attention to things like that. Uh, the most frustrating thing was teaching him to be quiet. <laughs> like, please don't step on all the sticks. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, and it just reminded me of when I was in San Diego in the deserts out there, you know, in the high mountains, and being like, yeah, the wind's going to come at 3 o'clock. And him just looking at me like, how, do you, how does my dad know this? Like, does he make the wind do this? Like, does he call somebody and order wind? Like, what's going on? And now we're up here in the mountains in the the Northwest. And I'm just like enjoying every minute of every element out there with him out in the door and in the outdoors and just being like, yeah, man, this is what this is all about. This is what this is from. This is why this is growing this way. The moss is on the North side of the trees. Why do you think that is? He's like, well, it's cooler. I'm like just astounded at how much he pays attention to as a kid. You know, the the influence that that fathers have is incredible, man. I could talk to you about fatherhood all day and, and, uh, I just have so enjoyed the conversation. So I'm going to ask you my last question, but before I do, is there any last thoughts you want to share, um, as it relates to fatherhood or parenting before, before we jump on, you shared so, so many good nuggets already. I would say the hardest thing for people, you know, and again, I'm only doing this for people that are in my shoes or maybe see the world the way I did, because I know not everybody you know, grew up the same way. And there are dads out there who are young and new, or maybe even a little bit along the way. And they know they want to change what they're doing, but they feel alienated because they're not, they're not the same guy that lived in the cul-de-sac. They're not the guy that grew up with a dad or a dad who had a dad. You know, I kind of call myself a first gen full dadder because I have a dad, but my dad didn't. And I would say the most important thing to do is take a deep breath. Um, Whether it's a a good thing or a bad thing, mostly, (laughs) I think the most we want to fix the bad things we're doing, but take a deep breath, look at your kids and realize what it is they are and what it is you want for them. And ask yourself if what you're doing at that moment helps you get there. Hmm. You know what I mean? And I think slowing down, slowing down is probably the biggest thing you could do. If you're somebody who comes from, I'll just call it a rougher background. Like I do. Yeah, man, that is, that is good. That is so good. Um, all right, man, here's my last question for you. Shoot. 30 years from now, you're standing on a street or a dirt road, looking into each of your son's houses and you're seeing them with their own spouse, their own kids. What is it that you see? What's the legacy that you built? Um, when you see them interacting with the people around them that, that, you know, that your day in and day out words and actions set them up for, I would say the, what I would hope to see 30 years from now is if all my sons just happen to be married and they may or may not have kids, but well, no, they'll have kids. They better have kids. My wife will be mad. Um, (laughs) 
but I hope not to see them necessarily, but their spouse hmm. and their children. And I hope to see that the look on their face is one of comfort. And, um, you know, I want, I would want to look at them almost looking over my son's shoulder, any four of them, any one of the four, I mean, and see that what they built is what I wanted for them. If that makes sense. If that the people that they're with know they're protected, safe and loved. Oh, dude, who says that? Who thinks that way? What 30, <laughs> what 34 year olds going, you asked me about my four sons and, and I'm insightful enough to go. I want to see the look on their spouse's face to know that the man that I've spent so many years building into is creating this environment for this other human being who isn't even in the picture yet, dude, <laughs> that that's legacy. That's life changing. That's thinking I mean, beyond your own life, right? That's thinking future generations because that kind of talk, that kind of, that kind of insight is, is going to be like, once you and I are gone, right? Yeah. Once you and I are gone, that is, is still in those, uh, future, future days, future shouts. Yeah. Um, dude, Nate, I've so enjoyed our conversation. Um, I love how authentic you are and how, you know, when I see, you know, there's so many people on Instagram and, and doing this stuff that, that what you're putting out there is true to your heart. I love that, you know, in looking at a six foot four buff football player, that there's a, it, that you are rebelling against that idea of what that means and that you can be a sensitive, insightful, but still be a strong man, both physically and mentally. And dude, keep loving your sons and your wife the way you are and inspiring the world around you, man. I so appreciated this conversation. I appreciate it as well. And I, I'm actually glad I got a chance to talk to you and go over this kind of stuff. So it's always good to have good dads to talk to you. Yeah, man. Well, thank you so much. And I look forward to continuing to watch the incredible things and adventures you have with your family. <laughs> thank you. Wow. Just incredible, right? I think one of the things I love in having such wonderful conversations with other fathers is to know that I'm not alone. Like you and I are not alone. Although the world may feel chaotic and without leadership, there's men like Nate all over who are peeking their heads up above the clouds and paying attention and making the most out of life, stepping into their fatherhood role. I'm so encouraged for myself and for all of us just to continue to forge forward and continue to do the same and be like Nate. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you did, please write a review or share it with a homie so that they could be inspired and encouraged as well. Every Monday, I put out this Fatherhood Field Notes podcast interviewing great dads like Nate. If you're interested in a shorter podcast, I put one out every Friday. falls in the same spot, but it's called Craft of Fatherhood. And I'll discuss a question or just talk about something shorter. It's usually like 10 to 15 minutes. And right now, I'm doing a four-part series on core values in your home. And you can go to the Rebel and Create website and download the Family Culture Guide for free where I kind of give you how it worked in my home and how you could apply that in your home as well. Thank you to all you dads out there listening to Rebel and Create's Fatherhood Field Notes podcast. What you do matters. Don't be like everybody else. Be yourself. That's who your kids, spouse, and community needs. This is your guide, Ned Shout. Together, let's rebel against the view that fatherhood has little impact and create lives engaged in mastering the craft of fatherhood. Talk to you next time.